morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, for it's through him that you have reconciled sinners like us to yourself. We can always that apart from him, we have no righteousness, that even our best works are like filthy rags. But in Christ, we are made perfectly righteous in your sight. You even call us your children. Father, as your children, we want to glorify you with our lives, and so we look to your word so that we might know your will for us. And please speak to us now. And please use me as your servant and your instrument to bring your words to your people. We ask that the Holy Spirit would work in each of us, that uh, this challenging text would get through to our hearts, uh, that we might indeed count the cost of discipleship, but find Christ to be our all-satisfying treasure. Please work in us a renewed passion and zeal and love for Jesus as a result of our time in your word this morning. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 9. We here at First Baptist have been working through the gospel of Luke. And this morning we come to this last little section of chapter 9. We are in verses 57 through 62. And so let's just start by reading the passage. Then we'll talk about what it means and how we might apply it to our lives as believers. So Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Hear the word of the Lord. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So in our text last week, from verses 46 through 56, you'll remember that Luke gives us three kind of mini-narratives in which Jesus rebukes his disciples. At first, they're having an argument about which one of them is the greatest. And so Jesus teaches them about pride and humility and true greatness. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And so it's not the one who exalts himself or carves out recognition for himself who's going to be great. It's the one who lowers himself and serves others for no other reason than for Jesus' sake. That's who's truly great in God's eyes. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And then second, they seek to stop another disciple from casting out demons just because he's not in their group. And so... What does Jesus do? He teaches them about the dangers of exclusivity. Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Like the kingdom of God is, is not just about your small little group there. I can do mighty works through other faithful disciples as well. And then third, when some of the disciples wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume those Samaritans who had rejected him, Well, he turned and rebuked them, presumably teaching them about his mercy and his patience towards sinners, a mercy and a patience that starkly contrasted with the disciples' desire for immediate vengeance. And so last week, we looked at those three mini-narratives about Jesus' teachings to his disciples. Well, this week's text is not all that different, right? It also consists of three mini-narratives And it's also about disciples, or at least potential disciples, who want to follow Jesus, and then Jesus' response to each of them. 
And maybe this is surprising at first, but notice how in none of the three responses does Jesus seem particularly enthusiastic about their desire to follow him. And that's because, well, Jesus knows, and we all know this to some degree, that anybody can make an enthusiastic commitment at the beginning. You just think about New Year's resolutions. Anybody can sit there on January 1st and make a commitment to lose weight or go to the gym or eat less uh, junk food or whatever it might be. But then once that initial excitement and enthusiasm wears off, right, once following through on those commitments becomes costly, like January 10th, it's, it's too cold to go outside, I don't want to go to the gym, and the Cheez-Its are on sale today, well, you show that your initial commitment was just a superficial and shallow one. It was never a wholehearted, all-in commitment. Well, in the same way, there were a lot of people back then in Jesus' day who had this initial excitement and enthusiasm about following Jesus. Right? They, they see the miracles, they see the wonders, they see the signs that we've been reading about, and they hear the teaching. And no one has ever spoken like this man. And so they say, I want to follow Jesus. And that's good. It's a good desire. It's a good start. But Jesus doesn't just stop there and accept their enthusiasm at face value. You, remember, you might remember after the feeding of the 5,000. At that point, Jesus' popularity is at an all-time high. He just, he just made food out of nothing. Oh, we'll never be hungry again. And so the crowds try to make him king. I mean, talk about enthusiasm and excitement for Jesus. Like, it is at a peak at that point. But instead of capitalizing on that popularity, instead of using that frenzy to just amass for himself thousands and thousands of superficial followers, well, John records for us how Jesus teaches them some really hard things about him being the bread of life, about not working for the food that perishes, about feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. And look at what John says happened after that. This is John 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But now at this point, instead of backtracking, instead of trying to soften the blow so he doesn't lose so many disciples, Jesus actually doubles down on the hard teachings. He says, do you take offense at this? And in doing so, he separates the wheat from the chaff. Right? He separates those who are truly committed to him from those who are only superficially committed. And the result, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They showed themselves to just be superficial followers. But even as Jesus weeds those out, well, his true disciples even more firmly establish their commitment to him. Right, look at the very next verse, verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so we see, here illustrated in John chapter 6, his hard teachings are to some a fragrance from death to death, but to others a fragrance from life to life. And that's exactly what we see happening here in Luke chapter 9. For each of these three potential disciples who express some desire to follow him, well, Jesus presents them with the costs of discipleship. He teaches them that following him, being his disciple, isn't just about this initial enthusiasm and excitement. That enthusiasm and excitement, that's only going to get you to January 10th. It's not enough to take you through all the sufferings and the hardship that his disciples are called to. No, what true disciples need is a wholehearted, all-in commitment. And so, through his hard words here, well, Jesus is both 
dissuading superficial followers by exposing their divided hearts and calling to himself true disciples who are wholly committed. So let's take a look now at these three interactions that we have in our text, these three disciples. And for each of them, we also need to be asking ourselves how what Jesus is saying here speaks into our own lives, right, to our own hearts, to our own following him as his disciples. So first, let's take a look at disciple number one. He's in verses 57 and 58. You look at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Let's stop right there and just take that statement at face value. I will follow you wherever you go. That is an incredible statement. That is a statement of unqualified devotion. It's not, I will follow you as long as I'm interested. Let me commit to you for a year. I'll follow, but only if you go to such and such a place, because I really want to go to such and such a place. No, this man wants to go with Jesus wherever he goes. That is a Ruthian commitment, and not like Babe Ruth Ruthian, but like Ruth and Naomi Ruthian. You remember her famous line, for where you go, I will go. That's, that's the kind of commitment that this disciple is expressing here. And there's one more little detail that we can add that I think makes this disciple's statement even more impressive. Uh, Luke, perhaps he's trying to keep the picture as general as possible. He refers to this man very generally as someone, right? someone said to him. And by the way, notice how Luke refers to the other potential disciples as another and yet another. Right? He uses very generic terms. But Matthew, in his account of this same interaction in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew gives us the detail that this man was a scribe. Matthew 8, 19, a scribe came up to him and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You remember the scribes, a part of the Jewish religious elite, right? the, the seminarians, the theologians. It's a scribe who says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Friends, for a scribe to call Jesus with no formal training in the Jewish seminaries, Jesus, right, to call him a teacher, and then telling him that he wants to follow him, that's basically the scribe admitting, like, I don't know anything. Forget all my formal training. Forget the recognition that people give to me. Like, I don't know anything. I might have the title, and I might have the accolades and the recognition, but Jesus, I need you to teach me. That's some great humility there. And even more significantly, remember that the scribes are a part of the Jewish religious establishment that hated Jesus. These are the guys who are eventually, look up real quick at verse 22 of chapter 9, who is going to reject and kill Jesus? It's the scribes. And so this man knows that if he commits to following Jesus like he says he wants to do, well, surely he's going to be cast out of all of his networks and circles and employment and friendships. He's going to be ostracized. So at least, like on the surface, this guy looks like a legit disciple. He passes all the tests. His humility his willingness to break off ties with those around him who are rejecting Jesus. And in the process, giving up his title and his position and his reputation, I mean, this seems like a no-brainer. You know, forget the 12th disciples, right? Let's make this guy the 13th disciple. This guy's legit. But let's curb that enthusiasm because, well, you remember last week's text, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest and they're trying to keep it on the down low and they don't want to tell Jesus about what they're talking about. But it doesn't work because, well, Luke 9, 47, Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts. And so here, once again, 
Jesus knows the reasoning of this man's heart, which explains why he's so quick to pump the brakes on what, I mean, to us, seems like a slam dunk. There's more than meets the eye here. We see that in Jesus' response to the scribe. Look at verse 58. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The saying is pretty straightforward. Basically, even animals like foxes and birds, even they have homes. But here's the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite self-designation. The Son of Man, in his incarnation, has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus has no permanent home. He doesn't have the comforts of sleeping in the same bed every night. The very nature of his mission, right? I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. I was sent for this purpose. The very nature of his mission means that he's got to go from place to place. He's relying primarily on other people's hospitality. And so hand in hand with that picture of just lacking basic creature comforts and thus being reliant on the welcome of others, well, it's the picture of him being rejected. And we saw that play out in last week's passage. Remember verses 52 through 56? Jesus goes to a Samaritan village hoping that they would receive hospitality there, a place to lay their heads, but they're rejected. The people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And so friends, just consider Just consider the condescension of Christ that is being encapsulated here in that statement. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I mean, not only does Jesus leave the glories of heaven and come down into our fallen creation, but as one who is incarnated within our creation, Jesus doesn't choose to be a king or a a prince or even a wealthy noble. No, he chooses to be born in the humblest of settings, laid in a manger. He lives in Nazareth, a, a town of no prominence. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He chooses to grow up as a lowly carpenter's son, And even in his years of ministry, he chooses for himself just a life of simple means and few possessions, nowhere to lay his head. And all of that was a part of his plan to save us. Sinners like us, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. By becoming poor for us, ultimately, of course, on the cross through his death, though pictured in smaller ways through his poverty and rejection in his life, he indeed has lavished upon all of his people the immeasurable riches of his grace. But don't miss the point that Jesus is making here. The point isn't just that his life here on earth, was not one of comfort and ease, but of suffering and hardship. His point is that his disciples should expect no different. Like he said in the Sermon on the Plain, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And so just like the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, well, so his disciples are called to be strangers and exiles, not attached to the things and the comfort and the ease of this world. And so Jesus, once again, knows this man's heart. He knows the reasoning of this man's heart. He sees beyond the seemingly all-out verbal profession, I will follow you wherever you go. He sees beyond that, and he sees that this man's got an attachment to the things of this world. He's got an idolatry of comfort and ease. He's, he's got a prioritizing of success and riches in this life. 
And so you see, and this is true with all of the conversations that we're going to see today, Jesus' reply to the disciple that tells us a lot more about what's really going on in the disciple's heart than his initial enthusiastic proclamation of loyalty. And so Jesus challenges this man here to examine his heart. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so Mr. Scribe, a life of following me is not about comfort and ease and riches and success. It's one of denying yourself and taking up your cross daily. So, Mr. Scribe, are are you sure? You've proclaimed those great words of allegiance, but do you really mean it? You've surely considered the benefits, but have you counted the potential costs, hardship and suffering and rejection? You might be saying now, I will follow you wherever you go. But does that include following me into poverty and lack and suffering and martyrdom if I were to call you to those things? Well, brothers and sisters, what about us? We might say we will follow Jesus wherever he goes, Do we really mean it? Will we follow even when he calls us to give up, say, comfort and ease and acceptance? Now, that's not to say that true disciples won't have a place to sleep every night. That's not to say that God can't grant seasons of comfort and ease to his disciples. And it certainly doesn't mean that if you really want to be a true disciple, we've got to take a vow of abject poverty and go out of your way to seek to be rejected or anything like that. But it is to say that if we prioritize comfort and ease and acceptance over Jesus, or if we are unwilling to sacrifice comfort and ease and acceptance for Jesus' sake— well, then it has to call into question whether we really understand what true discipleship is about. And so we need to ask ourselves hard questions. Am I willing to follow Jesus through hard things? Like when my obedience is costly and living for him means suffering and hardship, is my desire to follow still there? If following Jesus means I have to sacrifice time and energy and put off my own desires for comfort so that I can serve others for Jesus' sake, will I follow then? If following Jesus calls me to make financial sacrifices, whether it's taking a lower-paying job or living in a smaller apartment or spending less for the sake of the gospel, like, will I follow then? And if God were to call me to do something completely different with my life, maybe live without the comforts and ease that we as Americans are so used to, maybe even go to a third world country and be a missionary for the sake of the gospel. Like if God calls me to do that, will I follow? The point here isn't that comfort and ease are bad things in and of themselves. But comfort and ease can be bad things, very bad things, if they hinder our obedience to Jesus and the work that he's called us to. And so we ought to examine ourselves. Does the way that I spend my time and my energy and my money show that I value Jesus more than comfort and ease? That's what Jesus is getting at here in this first conversation. So the interaction with disciple number one teaches us that we must prioritize Jesus, following Jesus, over our own comfort and ease. Let's turn our attention to disciple number two, this second conversation that Jesus has with a a potential follower, verse 59. To another he said, 
follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, this conversation is a little bit different than the other two, in the sense that it's Jesus who approaches the guy and initiates the conversation here. Jesus says, follow me, as opposed to the disciple initiating by saying, I want to follow you. But the bottom line is the same. The man wants to follow Jesus, just like the others. But this guy, oh, he doesn't want to follow just yet. Now, there's some debate as to what exactly is going on here when he says, let me first go and bury my father. Maybe it means that his father just died. Like that morning, his father died. And so he's saying, hey, let me just get through this funeral first. Given that Jews would embalm bodies, and so there typically would not be any significant time gap between the death and the burial, uh, this option seems unlikely, unless Jesus is running into a funeral procession again, like he did at Nain. Another possibility is that bury my father is referring to a longer process after death, a process that might take up to a year. And so maybe that's what's being referred to here. The potential disciple is in the middle of that process, and he wants to complete that entire process before he follows Jesus. A third possibility is that let me first go and bury my father is an expression. It just means let me wait till my father dies and I can take care of his estate. And of course, with that estate comes the important part of the inheritance. And so who knows that how long that's going to take, waiting till his father dies. But whatever the actual scenario is, and I think if I had to choose, I would choose the last one. But whatever he actually means, a few things we can be sure of here. Number one, burying the dead, specifically a son's responsibility to see to it that his parents are buried honorably in their deaths. Uh, that would have been a really, really big deal in Jewish culture back then. That would have been prioritized over uh, pretty much everything else. Uh, for example, if you read through the book of Genesis, you'll notice that that's a big theme, right? Sons burying their fathers. A second, regardless of which of the three views you take as to what that phrase means, the net effect is basically the same. The man is asking Jesus for a delay in beginning to follow him, for the seemingly legitimate reason of tending to family issues, right? things that his culture would have expected him to do. So here's a disciple, a would-be disciple who wants to follow Jesus, but he's just got other priorities that he's got to take care of first. But Jesus says no. Again, knowing the heart of this man, he says no. The issue is not so much the social and family obligations themselves. The issue is that this man's heart, in this man's heart, those obligations had first place above his desire to follow Jesus. And so it's only when I've taken care of those obligations that I will then follow Jesus. And so again, Jesus exposes this man's divided heart. Gives him a challenging reply here. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. We were reading the text last night in our family devotions, and my daughter Ella says, what in the world does that mean? Well, I mean, physically dead people can't bury anything, unless they're zombies. All the creative things that you'll find in Bible commentaries, I did not find one reference to zombies. He's not talking about physically dead people here. Now he's talking about the spiritually dead. Leave the spiritually dead to bury their dead. Basically, you can leave those kinds of concerns to the world, to unbelievers. Right? Let, let unbelievers prioritize such things. Let unbelievers make burials and inheritances and estates, right? those kinds of things. Let them make that their priority. Your priority, if you want to be a true disciple, your priority, but as for you... Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
It's kind of like what Paul tells Timothy, right? No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Or what Jesus himself says about the seed that falls among the thorns. You know, the one that gets choked out by the cares of life. Now, that's not to say that it's wrong for a believer to arrange a funeral for their parents. Or that it's wrong for a believer to inherit anything. Or it's wrong for a believer to be involved at all in these temporal affairs like that. But it is to say that if your life revolves around those things, like those things are your number one priority, uh, cultural customs and family obligations and social expectations, that's what drives your life? Well, you're not all that different from the spiritually dead. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. If you're a believer, you are spiritually alive, then your priority's got to be proclaiming the kingdom of God. Because that's something that's impossible for the spiritually dead. Uh, Brothers and sisters, that is not an easy teaching. That nothing, no obligations, not even culturally important family obligations should hinder our wholehearted commitment to Jesus. We need to ask ourselves, are there worldly obligations in our lives? And when I say worldly there, I don't so much mean sinful as I mean of this world, like of this life, like of temporal value as opposed to eternal value. Are there worldly obligations in my life that take precedence over following Jesus? Whether it's your job or your school or your family or anything else. Again, it's not that those things are bad in and of themselves, but it's that they must be rightly prioritized or deprioritized in relation to that which is of first importance. Which, if you're going to call yourself a disciple of Jesus, has to be following him. And maybe a good barometer of this is as simple as your church attendance. Friends, if you regularly miss church because of other worldly obligations, like if church is second priority in your life to your work or your family or your friends or recreation or vacation or whatever it might be, we need to ask yourself whether your priorities are correct. What does that say about the genuineness of my discipleship? And so the interaction with disciple number two teaches us that we must prioritize following Jesus over important, even, worldly obligations. Which brings us now to disciple number three. He's in verse 61. Uh, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me say farewell to those at my home. I think it's interesting to compare this guy to disciple number two. They're similar. They're both like, yeah, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first, let me do something else. And Jesus calls them out. But they're also different. Because disciple number two, if we're understanding what he says correctly, he's asking Jesus for some kind of presumably prolonged, uh, perhaps indefinite delay in following. Uh, Maybe it's a year. Maybe it's until his father dies. But either way, he's asking for some kind of prolonged delay. But this guy here, disciple number three, assuming that he's not that far from home at that point, I don't know, he's asking for a couple of hours, maybe a couple of days if they're going to throw him like a, a goodbye party or something. Let me just go home real quick and just say goodbye. And so an initial reading of it, I don't know, it seems like a reasonable enough request. Add to that the fact that, well, this request here, it's really similar to the one that the great prophet Elisha, that he once made. You know the prophet Elisha, that's Elijah's successor. Uh, Elisha is out there, he's plowing the fields with his 12 yoke of oxen, and then Elijah comes along and basically anoints him to follow him into the Lord's ministry. What does Elisha say 
a great man of God, Elisha. What does Elisha say in response to that call? Well, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 20. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to Elisha, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And so Elijah allows Elisha to kiss his father and his mother. Right? Basically say farewell to those who are at his home. But in contrast, when you look at Jesus' response, verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So why does Jesus not allow his disciple to do something that Elijah allowed Elisha to do? I think the answer is that the issue is not saying goodbye at home. Like, I don't know, Jesus is in a rush. There's just no time for that right now. We don't have time for you to go home. No, the issue is what's going on in the heart. And this is where Elisha and this disciple, they differ greatly. For Elisha, the reason he goes back home is not because he longs to be at home. Not because his heart is divided. No, he goes home to make a clean break with his past so that he might wholeheartedly follow Elijah into the Lord's ministry. How do we know that? Well, the very next verse in 1 Kings 19, it tells us what Elisha does after he gets permission from Elijah to go home. Elisha returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. And so Elisha basically goes back to sever all ties to his past. That's symbolically demonstrated by sacrificing the oxen with which he is plowing the field. And he even uses the yokes, right, the, the wooden beams that would have been uh, on the oxen, right, tying them to the plow. He uses those wooden beams as the firewood. It's not because they had no other firewood. It's symbolically showing that for him, there is no turning back. Like, this is it. Even if I wanted to go back to farming, well, now I have no oxen and I have no yokes. You might be familiar with the story of Hernan Cortez, the explorer. When he, has, when he and his men arrived by boat to what's now Mexico, he ordered that his men would burn the ships on which they came. Why? Well, now you can't go back. Now you're all in, right? You're either going to conquer this land or die trying. That's basically what Elisha's doing here. He is cutting all ties to his past. I cannot be a farmer anymore. I am all in following Elijah. But this disciple in Luke, again, Jesus' response tells us a lot more about what's going on in his heart than his initial proclamation. His heart is divided. Look, there's a part of him that wants to follow Jesus. But the reality is that he really loved his family more. And there's a part of him that wants to go with Jesus. But oh, he really longed to be back at home. That's where his true affections were. And so Jesus addresses that divided heart with an illustration from farming. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The imagery there should be pretty clear. If you're plowing a field, you want to plow in straight rows. I have never plowed a field, and I'm guessing most of you haven't either, but I think most of us have mowed a lawn, right? So let's just think mowing a lawn. If you're like a really city person and you've never mowed a lawn, just think of pushing an upright vacuum, like vacuuming your carpet, right? Either way, it's all the same thing. You're trying to go in a straight line, right? You're, you're plowing, you're, you're, you're mowing, you're vacuuming your carpet. Well, you need to be focused on what's in front of you. If you're constantly looking back, and the tense of the verb in verse 62, it's not just like a one-time glance, but it's a continual looking back, a longing for something. Just picture a guy plowing his field, his head is completely turned backwards. Well, he's not going to do a great job. 
this morning, walking the, the kids to church, walking up West End Avenue, uh, Paxton and I are holding hands. Uh, Paxton is five. Uh, we see the most incredible thing I think that we have ever seen, uh, rarer than, I don't know, a unicorn or a double rainbow. Uh, we see a parking spot big enough to fit two cars on West End Avenue. And so we are walking with our jaws on the ground, like, whoa, this is a once-in-a-lifetime sighting right here. And as our eyes are fixed on that double parking spot, Paxton walks right into this giant pole of scaffolding that for some reason they decided to put in the middle of the sidewalk on West End Avenue. Our eyes were not looking ahead. They're fixed on something that was behind us. Our attention was divided. And now Paxton's got this big bump on his head. Jesus says that when it comes to following him, it's kind of the same idea, but with much more significant implications. Like if you're trying to follow him, but you've got this divided heart that's always looking back to other things. Picture Lot's wife looking longingly at Sodom. Well, you are not fit for the kingdom of God. If you're trying to follow Jesus, but your heart is always set on other things, even if they're good things like family, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, just to be clear on one thing, lest there be confusion about this, right, Jesus is not here attacking in any way the idea of family. Now, God's word is very clear. It clearly upholds the value of family. And even more than that, God's word specifically instructs husbands and wives and parents and children on how they can love and serve each other well. And so Christians must love their families. But again, the point here is that we've got to get our priorities correct. As a true disciple of Jesus, well, Jesus must be your number one priority. And then Jesus as your number one priority then informs how you think about your family, not vice versa. A Christian who lives under Christ's lordship, well, he's necessarily going to serve and love his family well in obedience to Jesus. But on the flip side, right, to, to put your family above Christ, uh, to thus make your family into an idol, uh, to make family what you ultimately worship, well, not only are you ironically robbing them of the blessings that God intends for you to bring to your family by elevating them wrongly, but even more significantly, you show that you are not fit for the kingdom of God. But the interaction with disciple number three teaches us that we must prioritize following Jesus over even our family. So there we have three mini-narratives, three mini-narratives in which Jesus responds to the would-be disciples' desire to follow him by giving this word of caution. Are you sure? A word of caution that should cause the would-be disciple to pause and self-examine and reassess their claim. Like, do I really want to follow? A word of caution that Jesus must be the number one priority in all his people's lives. Like, he can't just be something that we try to add on to our lives. Like, well, here are the things that I really prioritize, uh, things that are most important to me. Here are the commitments that I've made, the relationships that I value. And I'll just kind of squeeze Jesus in here and there where I can fit him. That just does not work. Right? Jesus is God. And God is simply too glorious and too great to share his glory with another. Jesus is too big to fit in around other priorities and commitments and relationships that we have in our lives. Now it's the other way around. Everything has to revolve around him. We see that in all three of these conversations. But did you notice that in all three of the conversations... Well, Luke leaves out one seemingly really important detail. What does he leave out? He leaves out their response. He does not tell us how the potential disciple responds. We don't have any clue. Like, do they walk away sad, like Luke tells us the rich young ruler did? 
on a separate admonition. Or maybe they hear what Jesus has to say and they repent. You're right, Jesus. Comfort is an idol in my life. Ease is an idol in my life. I need to worship you and you alone. Help my unbelief, Lord. Or the second guy. You're right, Jesus. My priorities are all twisted. I need to let the dead bury their own dead. I need to just follow you and proclaim your kingdom. Or guy number three. You're right, Jesus. My heart is so divided right now in terms of commitment. Give me a pure and undivided affection for you. Did they repent? Did they not repent? We have no idea. Now, why would Luke do that? I think it's a reasonable guess that Luke leaves those interactions open-ended. Again, remember the very generic terms that he uses to describe these three potential disciples. I think he leaves it open-ended and generic and general so that we, as disciples who are reading this gospel, we would challenge ourselves in the same way. And so what Jesus is saying here to these three guys, it doesn't only apply to these three specific people in their three specific circumstances. These are questions that every potential disciple ought to be asking themselves. And so we ought to ask ourselves, do any of the issues that Jesus brings up here, do they hinder my walk with the Lord? Do they hinder my discipleship? Does the consistent prevalence of any of these issues maybe show that I'm not a true disciple at all? A good barometer of this might be how we make the big decisions in life. Where to live, what job to work, what church to attend, how to raise your children. Like, what is the number one priority in your life in making those decisions? Is it ease and comfort and money and wealth, like disciple number one? Is it worldly obligations and social expectations, disciple number two? Is it what your family thinks or what your friends think, disciple number three? Or is it Jesus? This is a hard passage. This is a challenging passage. It's a passage that should cause each and every one of us who names the name of Christ to seriously reflect on what Jesus is saying about discipleship. But this is so important for us, right? Anytime we read a passage like this, we come across a difficult passage like this, right, that we not forget the gospel. Because maybe right now, right, uh, you really do love the Lord sincerely, And you really do desire to follow him wholeheartedly. But you're just broken by conviction that you don't love him as you ought. You haven't followed him as sincerely as you would like. Oh, your heart is so easily tempted to prioritize other things. Ease and comfort and worldly obligations and family. Well, there's two things that should be said to that. First... Praise God for the convicting work of the Spirit. Like if this text, if reading this passage leads to godly repentance and change so that you might be a more faithful follower of Jesus, praise God. May we be doers of the word, not hearers only. That Jesus really might be the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field that we would gladly give up everything for. But if this text produces that kind of repentance, then praise the Lord. But second, equally important, we need to remember that ultimately it's not about how well we follow Jesus. It's not about how sincere we try to be. It's not about the sacrifices that we make for his sake. It's not about the wholehearted commitment that we're trying to make. None of that saves us. It's the gospel that saves us. The gospel is of first importance. Don't miss how Luke frames all of this. These three conversations, how he frames all of this as happening. Look at verse 57. As they were going along the road. You say, Luke, where are they going? Where are they going along the road? Well, the answer is back in verse 51. They're going to Jerusalem. And why are they going to Jerusalem? 
because Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so you see the stark juxtaposition here, right? You've got disciples, potential disciples who are pulled away by the things of this world, wavering, half committed, like one foot in, one foot out. Or even true disciples who feel that pull more strongly than we would like to. Like like our interests and our our intentions, our desires are are divided and our, our commitment to the gospel just, at times it's so weak and it's so wavering. Now contrast that with Jesus. Jesus has set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, right, where he would suffer and die for the sins of his people, all his people who would trust in him, like even his weakest sheep. Jerusalem, where he would endure the wrath of God on behalf of all true disciples, even those who at times can waver. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What does Jesus do? He puts his hand to the plow, so to speak. He fixes his eyes on the cross for the joy that's set before him, and he never looks back. Friends, that is our only hope. The gospel is of first importance. Our salvation is not ultimately about how determined or committed or faithful we are. Our salvation is ultimately about how determined and committed and faithful Jesus was in dying for our sins. And so, brothers and sisters, if you take one thing away from this passage, let it be that above all, true disciples of Christ look to him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the challenging admonitions of Scripture that really pierce into our hearts and expose what is there. Father, we pray that for those of us who may be wrestling with division in our hearts or distraction in our hearts by the things of this world, Father, that you would give us a single minded, wholehearted commitment to your Son. Father, even more than that, give us grace that we might look to Christ. Christ who set his face to go to Jerusalem. Christ who accomplished the work that you set up for him. Christ who has finished the redemption that we all need. Father, let us look to him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.